Second Chronicles chapter number 7. <clears throat> I'm going to look at a familiar verse here. We'll get ready to feed back. Brother Brian, can you help me real quick? I appreciate it. All right. If you're there, would you say amen? All right. Let me get there too. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> if you're well, if you're there, just look this way. In 1741, a man stood in his Northampton church and he began to preach. He was burdened about the spiritual conditions and the deadness and the coldness that had seemed to take hold in the English colonies. In the, in the 1700s, there was a European philosophical movement that had moved from Europe to the English colonies, and it was beginning to spread rapidly. The movement was known as Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, and it was gaining popularity as the colonies began to fill with more and more people, uh, coming, uh, as more and more people came into, the, came into the colonies to make their a new stake here in the new land of America. Enlightenment thinkers emphasized a scientific and a logical view of the world, and they downplayed religion. At the same time, churches had become stale and formalized to the point that many no longer considered church attendance a very important thing. Many, considered, many Christians were complacent with their methods of worship, and some were disillusioned with how wealth and rationalism were dominating culture, and the church was failing in America. So with the burden of the fledgling church on his shoulders, this preacher took his place behind his pulpit and he began to preach passionately. Now his message was one that I'm sure that by today's standard would have irked the average churchgoer of our day. His message was one on sin and the sin of man and the judgment of God. It is said while this preacher was preaching that people began to lay hold of the pews and the columns in the auditorium and cry out that God would not let them slip off into hell until they had time to repent. The preacher's name was Jonathan Edwards and the sermon was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Around that same time Jonathan Edwards was preaching in the north, uh, there was a man who was also preaching in the southern colonies. Now this man was not part of the highly pompous and formal clergy that dotted the land. He was what you and I would probably call a, a, a camp meeting style of preacher. He was passionate, he was loud, and he was direct. He, 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 oftentimes he was so theatric and expressive that he would tremble while he preached. And it's even said that, 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 that at times his throat would even bleed at the loudness of his preaching. In fact, Benjamin Franklin once said of this man that his voice could be heard uh, on a clear day from as far as two miles away. And that's without the aid of any PA system. This preacher would preach to anyone who would listen to him. And many did. From slaves to Native Americans to the common people of the day. And one year, this preacher in the 1740s traveled more than 5,000 miles and preached 350 times. This preacher's name was George Whitfield. Now both of these preachers, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, are said to have been the preaching catalyst for what is known as the Great Awakening in America. It is, it, it, or really it's the first noted major revival that took place here in America. Their preaching caused Christians to once again reignite their faith and through it many sinners were saved. The American colonies once again made church a vital part of their life and their relationship to God deepened. 
Many historians actually claim that the Great Awakening influenced the Revolutionary War by, by encouraging notions of nationalism and individual rights. And several colleges from the Great Awakening were established to train preachers for the ministries. Colleges such as Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, and Dartmouth. Oh, how far they have come from their, from their roots. What a revival the Great Awakening must have been. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we have embarked on a new series of messages that I have entitled, Why Revival Tarries? Now, maybe you've heard it said in churches. I have. I've been in church for some 39 years of my life. I've heard it said many times. We need revival. But really, <laughs> to be honest with you, in my 39 years of life, soon to be 40 years of life, I can honestly say that I don't know that I've ever been a part of a revival. Now remember, revival is not a planned meeting where we'll gather together for a couple of nights during the week, we'll sing some songs, have a guest preacher come in, and go home unchanged. When we talk of revival, what we're talking about is, 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 is uh, we, we're talking about something that, that will change everything. We talk, we, we, we talk of revival. We even say we need revival. Yet, revival tarries. Can I remind you that true revival is this? True revival is a rekindling of our faith. Do you remember what it was like the day you first got saved? How excited you were? Man, how, how energized you were? How, how in love with Jesus you were? How you couldn't get enough of his word? How you couldn't get enough of praying? I mean, just the very thought that Jesus loved you enough to save you, I mean, it set your soul on fire and tears began to stream. You remember what it was like when you first got saved? How about now, friend? How about now? It's a rekindling of our faith. It's a reigniting of our zeal. You remember what it was like when you first got saved and how you couldn't wait to tell your, your parents or your friends or your family or your coworkers or anybody how you, how you met Jesus and how your life had been changed and how everything now because you've been saved? How about now, friend? How about now? It's a reigniting of our zeal. It's a re-energizing of the saints, of the saint. But lastly, it's also a renewing of the sinner. There are lost people to come to a loving God who, who, who saves them. It was, it, it, that, is, that, is when, that is where revival is found. So let me ask you again. Why does revival tarry? Why does revival tarry? Well, remember last week we, we looked at one of the reasons why I would say that revival tarries. Revival tarries because you and I have become bored with the blessings. Bored with the blessings. Can I just remind you and I, God has been so good to us. He has provided so many wonderful things to his children. He has blessed us beyond measure. And yet, you and I have become bored with the blessings of God. We're bored with the bondage blessings. The fact that Jesus loved us and saved us, pulled us out of the bondage of our sin, gave us a new home and a new life and a new place in heaven, and, and, we, and now we're just like, oh, that's great. Well, I love the Lord. And we're bored with the bondage blessing. We're bored with the basic blessings of life. I mean, you remember how, 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 how the Lord, I mean, how, how God has blessed us with just the most basic things in our day. 
I mean, listen, this week, I, I've, I, my, this whole week, there's been food in my house, and there's been, there's been shoes on my feet. I, I've had a, a roof over my head. I've had air conditioning, thank, thank goodness. I mean, I've had so many things that we just don't, we take for granted. But let me remind you, whatever you have, whether it's a lot or a little, whether it's much or, or nothing, I want you to know whatever you have, it's been God who's provided it to us. Why in the world would we ever get to a place where the very fact that the basic blessings that God would give to you and I, we are no longer thankful for. We're bored with the basic blessings, the bondage blessing. We're bored. We're bored with the, the beyond blessings. Those things where the Lord steps in and provides things to you and I. Beyond what you can ask, think. And we just no longer even care. It just passes us by. We're bored with the blessings. And because we're bored with the blessings, revival tarries. Well, today, I want to look at another reason why revival tarries. Not only are we bored with the blessings, but we also refuse to repent. We refuse to repent. Now, the verse that we're going to look at today is quite possibly the most famous verse in our Bible in regards to revival. Look in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14. Let's read it. Here's what it says. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Lord, I pray, Lord, you'd help us now as we look at your word. God, I don't want revival to tarry. God, not in my own heart, not in my church. But God, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to see your word now, hear your word. Most importantly, obey your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, this verse, again, like I said, is probably the most famous verse in regards to revival that, I, that there probably is in the Word of God. In fact, when I've said to you, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, many of you probably were like, oh, I know which verse he's going to look at today. He's going to look at verse number 14. But while it is a, 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 a well-known verse, it is also a very important verse for you and I as well. This verse involves a people, a practice, and a promise. And I want to break this verse down with you if I can, and I want to show you one reason why I think revival tarries. And it's because we refuse to repent. Let's look at this verse together and we'll go home. First of all, let's talk about what I would call the people of this verse. The people of this verse. Look at right there, the very first line, it says this. If my people, which are called by my name. Now in this one statement, we understand that God is directing this verse to a select group of people. Now, when we look at the Old Testament context of, of, of this verse, we, we, we know that the people referred to in this verse have to do with the Israelites, the nation of Israel. All, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, God chooses a man named Abram. And through this man, God chose a people, the, the, the nation of Israel. Through the bloodline of Abram, through his son Isaac and his grandson J Jacob would come the nation of Israel. And it was through his people, the nation of Israel, that God would choose to reveal himself not only to, 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 to his people, but to the world. So when I read that, I see it says my people 
called by my name. And I know contextually that has to do with the nation of Israel. I, but listen, but while I know, now I know that, that, that you and I, we're not the nation of Israel. But I, we also must remember that while all of the, the Bible may not be written to me, all of the Bible is written for me. And, and so, so when I look at this verse, I know that I'm not the nation of Israel, but I also can know that there is a great principle right here in this verse that will help me when it, when it comes to my walk with God. Because I want you to know that even now that we're in this New Testament age of grace, God still has a people. God still has a people. His people, God's people, are the church. Now, this group of people are not, are not, not, not a group of people who were born into some tribe. They're not of some chosen nationality. They're not of a select group of individuals. No, sir, this, this, this people, they're made up of the poor and the rich, the educated and the uneducated and, and the unlearned, the black and the white. They are those who have come from the, to the cross of Calvary and found their sin paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. They, they my friends, are the church and they are the people of God. You know, so when I, when I look at this, I can pull a context and say that my people called by my name. There's a principle in this verse for me, for a child of God. And sadly, God's people have lost sight of their responsibility to the world around them. We, we, are, we complain about the sin that runs, runs rampant in our land, and yet God's people sit in their churches cold and callous. We complain about the lack of interest in the world that the world has in Jesus Christ, and yet God's people sit in their churches disinterested in worshiping the God who saved them. You know, it's about time that the church, that, that God's people stop pointing their fingers at the world around them and start looking at themselves and to take responsibility for where their lack of, lack of zeal and lack of enthusiasm and lack of interest in the Lord and what is caused in the nation around them. You know, God tells Solomon that the responsibility is placed squarely on my people. My people. Friend, in, in 2022, can I just remind you that you and I, we can attribute the coldness, the coldness, deadness, deadness and indifference of this world to a cold, dead, and indifferent church. My people, the people of this verse. Friend, can I just say, not only do I see the people of this verse, I see what I would call the practice of this verse. Because this one verse goes on to say this. If my people, shall, uh, if, if, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, Solomon has just completed the seven-year building project of the temple of God in Jerusalem. After, that, after the building was completed, there, was a, there were great sacrifices and a prayer from Solomon to dedicate the temple of the Lord. But I like that you can read about it in previous chapters here. After Solomon gets done sacrificing so many, uh, so many uh, oxen and, and, and lambs, Solomon gets to pray. And when Solomon gets done praying, the Shekinah glory of God falls down in that temple. And the Bible said that it was so thick, the glory of God was so thick in that temple that the priests couldn't even get into the temple to even, to even do, do their job because God's glory was so prevalent and so thick in that temple. Oh friend, how would it be for one day for you and I to come to church and God's glory fall down on this place and God's glory 
rest heavy on this place. And it'd be so thick in here that you and I, that we can't even get the, the, the piano player up to play the piano. The choir, like we can't even get the choir up to sing. I can't even get, get up to preach because God's glory is so thick in this place that all you and I can do is just gaze at the glory of God. Oh, for a day it was like that again, friend. Oh, but, but after all that's said and done, after all that's said and done, and, and, and Solomon comes up after, after he's done praying, after the glory of God comes down, God in chapter, chapter 7 and verse number 12 begins to have a conversation with Solomon. And, and God meets with Solomon to issue a warning about what would happen if the Israelites would ever grow, grow cold and disobedient to God. Look at verse number 12. Here's what it says. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. But then he says this, but in verse 13, if I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Can I tell you what that is? That is a warning from God about what would happen if his people ever chose to be disobedient or cold on him. God told Solomon that, that if there was there was a punishment that would come if there ever came a day where God's people ever turned their back on them again. Now listen, we, we, you probably know this, know this if you've been in church any time on time. They did that. They, God's people were always in a cycle of being faithful, to being forgetful, to being, to being faithless, to going into, into bondage. There was this constant cycle of God's people. And God was faithful to always do what he said he was going to do. When God's people became disobedient, he sent issues into their life. Look at the three issues he talked in 13 that he said he was going to send. That he would say that there would be no rain, drought. And then, or if he commands the locusts to devour the land. Or if he said a pestilence among my people. Those are three issues I find to be very interesting. You know, if I could just take us to the world you and I are living in, living in today, can I just, I, I was just doing some research and I was just thinking about that, that, one, that one promise in verse 13. Did you know on August the 12th of 2022, there was an article issued by the, by, by the, by, um, the Wall Street Journal that was entitled this, that droughts are getting worse and worse in our nation? Did you, in, 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 they, they attribute it to global warming. They want to find all these, these, these man-made excuses for why it's happening. But we're living in a day and age where the world is drying up, where there's no rain or not enough rain. Listen, I just, I just gave up on my garden. I just pulled everything up because I'm just tired. I'm getting tired of, you know, never having enough rain. It's just never enough. How about, but then the second thing in verse number 13, that if, if, he, if I commanded the locust to devour the land, I found an article that was published in June 14th, 2020 by NPR, and here was the title of their, of, their, of their article. Locusts are a plague of biblical scope. About the locusts that were devouring farmlands and all across the, the Middle Eastern region. <clears throat> you know, then that last promise, well, a promise of pestilence. That poor pestilence, another good synonym for pestilence would be the word plague or disease. Does anybody remember 2020 at all? Have we forgotten? I doubt it. So we, so we, we, I mean, here in our nation, we've had to deal with COVID. Now I've heard words about things, something called monkeypox coming through, coming around. I mean, it's just we're in a constant state of constantly having to deal with the issue 
after issue after issue. Man, you flip the news on, and all of a sudden, all you're wondering when you turn the news on is like, what major crisis is coming our way now? You know, have you, have you ever stopped church for a moment and thought, I wonder how many times God sends a crisis to wake up God's people? We think of crises as a punishment on the world around us. But I wonder how many times God sends a crisis into our nation to wake up God's people to the problems around us. I mean, that's, what, that's what he said. That's what, that's what Solomon told, God told Solomon. Hey, I'll send, I'll send a problem to your nation if my people disobey me. I'll send a problem to your, to your economics, to your, to your economy, if, if, if my people disobey me. I'll send a problem to, you, to, to your society if my people disobey me. I wonder how many, how many times God has sent problem after problem after problem after issue after issue after issue down the way to try to get his people to wake up and realize there's a problem. And there is a problem. Because what happens is this, in verse number 14, God says this, if my people, which are called by my name, and he says this, he gives them four actions, but they all lead up to one major action. Humble them, shall seek my face, uh, sorry, humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. That that's not, listen, that's not, that's, not, that's not to the world around us. That principle is not, is not to, the, to the drunk on the street or to the drug addict in their, in, in their, in their home. That principle is not, is not to, the, to, the, to the man running around uh, on his wife and, uh, out there in the world. That, that principle is to God's people. That God's people, if there's a problem, if there's an issue, if they'll, if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and the last thing is to turn from their wicked ways, let me give you another good word for that, to repent. Repent of their sins. Now listen, friend, there is a, that, that all of those things work together to come up to the point of you and I coming to a place where we truly want to repent from the sin of our life, from the, from the wrong of our life. Listen, friend, hey, listen, there's a big difference between asking forgiveness for something and then being repentant of something. Listen, when you and I come to a place where we really realize that our sin, our wrong, what we've done, our disobedience to God has come to a place where we have broken fellowship with God, can I tell you what it ought to do? It ought to humble us. Hey, we ought not, we ought not to sit there in our pride and our self-righteousness and say, well, it's okay. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I want to go. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'll, I'll drink this. I'll do this. I'll take this. I'll be with that person. I'll go here and I'll do this because I want to do what I want to do. Oh no, friend, that's not humility. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's looking at the holy God who loved you, created you, but more than that, saved you and saying, God, I'll do what I want to do. You go do what you want to do and I'll just be me. There is no humility in that. And because there's no humility, there can be, we can never get to repentance. But if we'll humble ourselves, oh, if we'll get to a point where we'll say, God, I'm so, I messed up. I realize that what I've done is wrong. I realize that the, the, the actions I've taken, the things I've seen, the words I've said, the places I've gone, and when I realize that those things, they're sinful, they're wrong. So we humble ourselves, and then we pray. Pray. Can I tell you, the sad thing about a lot of God's people in our day 
is that what we want to do, how we use prayer, is we, what we want to do is we want to go out and we want to sow all the wild oats we can. And then we want to look at God and pray and just pray that God would send us crop failure. And friend, it don't work that way. We use prayer as a crutch so we can continue working in the sinful state that we want to live in. I know I, I, know I should have done that, so I'm going to pray and ask God to forgive me so I, can go, so I can feel better about it, so I can go do it again. And that ain't how it works, friend. That's not true repentance. But if we ever get to a point where we can humble ourselves, and then we can pray. And I like that third one. Seek God's face. You know, I think about over, over in Isaiah, chapter number 6. Now, Isaiah, was, Isaiah was a man, he kind of like, like me. He was, and it was chapters 1 to chapter, to chapter 5. He is looking around him, and he's just saying, Woe unto you, and woe unto you, and man, you're, you're wicked, and you're evil, and you've done wrong. Woe unto you, and woe unto you. But when he got to chapter number 6, he stepped in and he saw the face of God. You know what he said? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Can I tell you something? When you and I ever get to a place where we really want to seek God's face, then that means you and I really are willing to be able to be seen in the way that God sees us. There's no pride in seeking God's face. There's no self-righteousness when you and I are seeking the face of God. It is a place of humility. It is a place of understanding that without Him, we're nothing. It's a place of understanding that we need Him every hour. We need His touch. We need His, we need His help. That's when you and I can come to a place where we can seek God. So we humble ourselves. We pray. We seek His face. And then we come to a place where we can actually truly turn from our wicked ways. Or another good word for that would be Repent. Because that's what the word repent means. The word repent literally means to turn 180 degrees away from. That's repentance. Re re true repentance is not, Lord, I know that I should not say that stuff. I know that I shouldn't use that vulgar language. So forgive me. And then the next day we go out there and it's just all, everything we can say is vulgarity. That's not repentance. Lord, I know, I know I should not see that stuff on my computer screen. I know that I shouldn't be reviewing that stuff. I know it's wicked. I know it's evil. So forgive me. The next day, we could be having that stuff back on our computer screen, ruining our lives. Lord, I know I shouldn't be drinking that stuff. I know it's wicked. I know it's evil. I know what your word says. Hey, I know, I know how you, I, I, God, I shouldn't have anything to do with it. Just for the next day, if we go out there, we tsh, pop a cold one. That's not repentance. There is a major difference between asking for forgiveness and being truly repentant. Because being repentant says, God, I don't ever want to do it again. And being repentant means we put things in the place to keep us from doing it again. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Today is today is uh, this is uh, this is y'all don't care about this, but I do. Today is the 52nd anniversary of the church I grew up at. They're having homecoming today. But uh, the former pastor, the man who started that church, he was my he was my pastor for a lot of years. Here's what he always used to say: You never put temptation 
and opportunity in the same room. Because that's what repentance looks like. You never, listen, listen, you never put your temptation that you have to fight against. You never put that temptation and the opportunity to do that temptation in the same place. Friend, if you, if you have a problem with what you're looking at on your computer screen, then I tell you what you ought to do. You ought to put some safe, safe, safety barriers. I mean, even if it comes down to the point where you cut your internet off at your house, I mean, whatever it takes. Hey, if you know it's wrong and you know you shouldn't, then the friend, what you ought to do, true repentance looks like asking God to forgive you and then putting things in place to never put yourself in a position to be right there again. Oh, friend, if you got a problem with, with alcohol, I tell you what you do, ask God to forgive you, but then put things in place. Get rid of friends. Get rid of, get, get rid of all the temptation you got so you never get there again. Listen, there's a big difference between asking forgiveness and being truly repentant. The problem is, is too many of us, of God's people, we don't want to truly repent. We refuse to repent. We have t- our, our sins have become like that pet that we know we shouldn't have, but we don't want to get rid of. So we want to commit to sin Ask the forgiveness to feel better about it just to go commit the sin again. And friend, God don't work like that. How can God want to send revival to a people that have no desire to actually want to have be revived by God? Because we refuse to repent. I see the people of this verse, the practice of this verse. But then lastly, let me just show you this. I see the promise of this verse. Just says this, then I will hear from heaven, and then and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Oh, friend, I like that part of that verse. All the drought and the famine, the locusts, the issues. God says, if my people will just repent, then I'll hear from heaven, and I'll fix it all. Now I don't know what that looks like from our day and age. You know, but I, I, I will tell you this. I don't want to downplay God to the point where I don't think there couldn't be another great awakening that swept across our nation. You know, I don't, think, I, I don't, want, to, I don't want to downplay God to the point where I, where I, where I don't think God could change, change the whole catalyst of our nation that seems like it's going more downhill day by day by day. Because, friend, I know God can. God can do anything. But I'll tell you this. God's not going to do it. If his church doesn't get to a point where it's really willing to, where it's will, church does he not get to a point where it's willing to repent of its sin? I didn't say ask forgiveness for. I said repent of their sin. But yet we refuse to repent. You know, <clears throat> let me just say this and I'll be done. The truth of the matter is, I know we understand this, that sin has a personal consequence. That when you and I sin, there's a personal consequence for that. We don't lose our, if you're hearing today saved, you don't lose your salvation. And we understand that. But you can lose your fellowship. And that's a consequence. You can lose your joy. You can become bitter. You can become, you can become cold and calloused. And that's a personal consequence to sin. But you know, what I, you know the thing I gather from that verse, that verse? Is that, that not only is there a personal consequence to sin, but there's a global consequence to sin too that the heavens were shut up. The locusts devoured the land. The pestilence covered the land because of the sin of God's people. 
Now, I wonder. Let me, let me bring it right back here to Bible Baptist Church. I hate to think that not only the sin that I am so in love with, the sin that I'm so caught up with, not only, do I, not only would I hate to think of how it's going to affect me personally, the fact that I can't cry out to God and Him hear me except for a cry of repentance, the fact that I lose out on the blessings of God and the joy of God, the fact that I, I miss out on all that stuff personally, but then to think that my sin could be the reason why Bible Baptist Church couldn't experience a revival because I refuse to repent. Oh, friend, that's a consequence I'm not willing to pay because I like the promise. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face and... and, 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 and as I shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. And then will I heal their land. My friend, that's revival. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what, I, that's what I want God to do. I want God to meet with us. I want God to rekindle my life. I want him to reignite. I want him to re-energize. I want him to take... I want step into this place and do something that when people look at it, they know it's only God doing it. It's not a preacher working something up. It's not a, it's not a choir working something up. It's God who steps in and he changes the life of the people in the building. But I don't want my sin to be a reason why God can't step in because I refuse to repent. I refuse to repent. Why does revival tarry? I'll tell you why. Because God's people refuse to repent. His bowed eyes closed. Nobody looking around.